The Sisters Grimm podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Please, listen at your own discretion. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The most notorious serial killer in the nation, the Light Stalker. The Boston Strangler. The Son of Sam, the infamous Zodiac Killer. What's your favorite scary movie? Welcome everybody to the Sisters Grim Podcast. This is Holly. I immediately thought you were going in with an Australian accent because it, it like right at the start it sounded like it, but then you didn't. I'm here uh, too. I'm Morgan. Well, to restart, I can say this is a Sisters Grim Podcast and my name is Holly and I'm here with my sister Morgan. Thank you for doing it for me because I can't do an Australian accent. You can. It I just will probably like the Outback Steakhouse guy. I will probably attempt it during this, but it's not going to be good and I am starting the podcast by saying that. Well, and I will also say that mine is not perfect. It's probably very muddled. Right. But I watched a lot of australian tv so did i like, but yeah uh, i can't pick up on it it's but it's one that i cannot do whereas like i can do british pretty decently yeah. or like geordie accent because i've watched so much geordie shore anyways this episode yeah. is about australian Austral- true crime stories true crime stories or, or i'm killers? gonna say that because one of mine is a tbd kind oh, of moment okay okay i mean it's like We'll talk about it. I like it. I like it. So, <laughs> let's just uh, just fucking do this. Let's. Well, we. <laughs> so we were just. We made a funny video of Holly in Australian accent pointing to all the stars on the Australian flag and talking about all the different states that they represent. I, I don't. I could be fucking wrong though. Oh, I, th- I totally believed you. Well, I got up there to just do it as a joke, and then you were like. I'm gonna do this. Oh, I thought it was oh, real. I can't. I can't be. I don't think I'm wrong. Okay. I don't think I'm not right. I think they have to stand for that. I but. also <laughs> want to say that Holly and I both texted each other, being like, "Okay, so <laughs> Australia is obviously like different than America. <laughs> different than America, but also came from England. And what they still do that we Americans do not do anymore is they wear the wigs in court." Yeah, Miss they have Ma'am. The high crown. They do the drag. Oh my god! <laughs> I was saying well, to Mike yesterday. I was like, <laughs> "It's just I so funny to me because it's like, yes, we are going to court, but also we are fully laying down a wig. We are yeah. snatched. Literally, we are making this a cosplay moment." Well, I don't. <laughs> I think I don't know. I'm not well, gonna like say what I think, but it right. is drag. Well, I will just say that the first time I saw it, I literally gasped, laughed, and like had to pause. But I mean. And also, I don't know if you noticed from anything you watch, but there's, like, variations of the wig. Yeah, they're they're almost... <laughs> a lot of them are almost toupee-like, too. Well, like, the guys that yes. you can tell don't really want to be wearing the wig, but they have to. I think to. it's, like, the solicitors or, like, the lawyers. Well, so there's the solicitors, and then there's the... Magistrates. No, they're the, um... The crown. Well, the crown is just, like, the whole idea. (laughs) Hang on, I have the information somewhere here. The magistrate's, like, the judge, right? They have a a name. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I can't find solicitor. it. Well, solicitor. So dad explained That's to me they that have solicitors in. are like the people who don't go to court. But then the people that do go to the court, a.k.a. the drag queens. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is probably super problematic. But they no, go to solicitors court. solicitors go to court too. No, they don't. Yes, they That's do. the whole zhuzh of it, Holly. No, they don't. I'm telling you that they do because in my story, one does. Okay. Well, from what I've read, I think they, they can I need to stop. Can't. I can't do the accent. I think they it's can really and they don't. Probably. But I do. I don't. Fully we'll get to it but the the ones who go to court and like specifically the ones who wear the wigs they have a special name that i cannot just pause it really quick i'm gonna figure it out barristers are what they're called right i think well what i've got here which is um barristers are uh, let's see. A solicitor is a lawyer who gives legal advice, but a barrister is a lawyer who is specialized in representing. So I think just anybody maybe could be a solicitor. Maybe. And then, but like to be a barrister, you are obviously, you know. I guess more trained for court specifically. Specifically. <clears throat> so also how to do the wig thing. Right. Right. So let's get into it. And I'm going to start with Australia's most, I would say, notorious and most well-known serial killer. Okay. Because, I mean, I know who this person was, and I couldn't have named any other, um, you know. I can honestly say that I didn't know one, for sure. I only knew about the Snowtown murders, which we are not doing today. No, I watched the movie, and it really yucked me out, and we were going to do it, but... Yeah, it, it was it was too much, you guys. Not... There was the debate this week, like, we've been dealing with a lot. There's a lot going on right now. So, um, Ivan Millet, or Millet, depending on... What you decide to go by. So Ivan Millet is one half of the inspiration of the movie Wolf Creek. Um, (gasps) OMG. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Part him and part uh, Bradley John Murdoch, who killed an English backpacker in um, 2001. And so if you have not seen Wolf Creek, it is about... You know, Dad has that movie. A serial killer. On DVD. I know. Dad also has, like, one of the Silent Hill movies. Well, I was just going to say, we should watch it, because oh. I, I haven't watched it since it came out in, like, 2007. Something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, boop. What was I going to say? Um, Beep. Oh, so, yeah. No, it's a killer who, like, kills backpackers, and right. he was known as the backpack killer. Um, He had a very thick handlebar mustache, and he looked- I, I saw pictures of him, but I, I didn't try to dive too deep. Right. Um, okay, so he pitched, picked up rather hitchhikers, or backpackers rather, who were heading to South Sydney, or were coming from South Sydney and going to Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so five of his victims were foreign, three were German, two were English, and two were Aussie. Does that add up? Yeah. Um, and they were all found... And killed at Belanglo State Forest. Uh, so, his dad's name was Stephen Millet, and he was from Croatia. His mother Margaret was uh, from Australia, and she was a devout Roman Catholic, and strictly followed the no contraceptive rule. Mm. And so, there were fourteen kids, ten boys, and four girls, and Ivan was the fifth. Ten boys. Yeah, and they were. Holy Can you imagine? I can't. And she was a good mother. Um, but the dad, Stephen, like, sucked. And he was very aggressive and he was very violent. Um, he worked his sons very hard on the family tomato farm. 
Yeah, if you have 10, 10 people, why would you not? Right, but you shouldn't be dicks to them. <laughs> right. Especially if you're, you're there, no, daddy. Um, but like I said, Margaret was a great mother, and she stood by her family, and she was very devoted. Um, her and Ivan had like a very, very close relationship. He was kind of considered a mummy's boy. So um, Ivan was born on the 26th, uh, 27 December 1944. Um, just to give a little background of all old he was that was just in my notes okay so his first victims were joan walters and caroline clark in 1990 and they were both british they had met at a backpackers hostel so during this time which was the like during the 80s and 90s 90s, yeah um backpacking became was huge billion dollar industry because it's a thing in my story it was a huge thing to do because did you learn the difference between a backpack and a day pack i did not so a backpack so like if you as someone who maybe doesn't know a lot about like really like backpacking hiking whatever you might go to an outdoor store and say i would like a backpack and then they're going to take you over to a section of huge ass backpacks because they have to be able to carry like a tent maybe a pot and pan so all this huge your whole back but a day pack that's more of like what we think of as like a backpack like a smaller backpack that's a day pack anyway (laughs) okay no i'm actually very glad that you said that because that makes a lot of sense hitchhiking and backpacking is a is definitely in my next story also. Right. It seems theme. pretty prevalent in Australia because, for the most part, they probably felt safe up until these things started happening. So, um, like I said, they were both from England, but they had met while they were both backpacking. And they became instant buddies, and then they started traveling together. Joanne was 22. She was from Mystic Wales. And she worked as a nanny. And so, as she was traveling, she would just, you know pick up babysitting and nanny jobs and that's like how she would make her money and then she would just you know go on her mary poppins way to another country um caroline was 21 and she was from surrey she was very strong-willed and from a very uh early age she was very fascinated with australia she really liked the soap operas um neighbors and home and away and so she really you know right um it's like how people in america like romanticized Paris, kind of like, and they always yeah. want to maybe something like that. I don't know. So the girls had been traveling together for a while, and in September of 1992, they took a train um, to Southwest Sydney, and they were then going to hitch a ride to Melbourne. They were looking to go south down the Hume Highway, and they accepted a ride from a man who said that his name was Bill, but it was not. It was Ivan. <laughs> So the girls found him to be very charming, and he started out pretty chatty, you know, had some conversation, but then as the drive went on, he got very sullen, quiet, a little aggressive, Mm. and they were kind of like, hmm. Um, So then Ivan stopped the car and got out, and he got a gun that was underneath How old did you say he was again around this time? He was... 30s, 40s? Well, let's do some quick math. He was born in the 40s, and this is 90, so, um... He'd be, like, in his 50s, yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. So, um, he got out of the car, and he got a gun, and he told Joanne and Caroline that he was just gonna rob them, and if they cooperated, he wasn't gonna hurt them. And, 
Uh, he tells Joanne to tie up Caroline and then he ties up Joanne. And so then he pulls off a little past the town of Barama onto Bunagalore Road and drives deep into the Belanglo Forest. He stops and he gets the girls out of the car and they walk into the bush, which is um, basically like just off the beaten path. Okay. Um, the bush. The bush. Um, so he tells the women that he wants... Then he's like, well, I want to have sex with you. Mm. And so he unties Caroline's, Caroline's arms and he lets them both have cigarettes and he tries to like calm them down. Um, but eventually he tells Caroline to get on her knees and mm. he wraps um, a maroon crew neck sweatshirt, which are also called Sloppy Joe's. And it's not. I'm a, sorry. It's not just a, a Australian thing. I thought it was Australian, but it's. It's just, like, another nickname for, like, a like you right now are wearing one with a hoodie, which is a jumper, and it's just a jumper without a hoodie. So, wait, but is it a it's sloppy Joe? It's called a Joe? sloppy Joe. No, so what I'm wearing food. is a sloppy Joe. No, what I'm wearing is a sloppy Joe. Okay. What you're wearing is a jumper <laughs> or a sweatshirt. I'm wearing a sloppy Joe. Oh, now I want a sloppy Joe. I don't. I think that's the most disgusting food. Mm-hmm. Um, sloppy Joes. So, anyways, um, so he put the sloppy Joe... No, let's be serious about this. He put the sweatshirt around her head, and then he shot her in the head. And Joanne started... After having sex with her? Or before? He doesn't have sex with her. Okay. Um, so Joanne starts freaking out because she just heard her friend get murdered. So um, Ivan puts a gag in her mouth, and then he does this really weird thing. He goes back over to Caroline... And he moves her head slightly and then shoots her again and then moves it a little more and then shoots it. And he does this 10 different times. How much ammo does he have? Um, we'll talk about that. Okay. I don't know how much is in his gun, but I, the gun is, um, comes back. Okay. It's a Chekhov's gun situation. For sure. Um, and then, so he did this weird ritual of turning her head and shooting her. And then he stabbed her once in the back. So he dragged Joanne about 30 meters, like 100 feet away from Caroline's body. And then he stabbed her in the back into her spine, which paralyzed her. Mm. He then raped her and then like frenziedly attacked her and starts just stabbing her over and over and over again. And then he just covers her body with some like sticks and branches and leaves. Not very um, thoughtfully or, you know not concealing them very well. So he, um, about five months later, there's two runners and they discovered, uh, Joanne's body, which was under the ledge of a large rock. And Caroline's body is found nearby along with some of their personal items, like their jewelry and other stuff from their purses. They notice that there is no sign of their capping equipment. And obviously, if they had been camping in this area, they would have had camping equipment. Mm -hmm. So, clearly, someone had their camping equipment. Um, The girls had a very specific blue tent that Caroline had been given. And the tent was in pretty good shape, except it had a couple holes in it. And so, the friend that gave it to them taped it up with these little... um, uh, labels that he'd printed out from his computer and they had his name and address on them. Mm. So it was obviously a very unique 
uh, tent. So after Joanne and Caroline's bodies were discovered, police started an investigation in the nearby town of Bowral. Um, they brought in a forensic psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Rod Milton, and he's like the foremost forensic um, psychologist in Sydney. And um, they wanted to get um, like a psychiatric profile of the killer. And he said that this person had done this sort of thing before. And that they enjoyed seeing people suffer. Mm. Um, he uh, also said that the person was probably local, too. Um, so do we know for sure that this was his first killing? No. Or, we, <laughs> or yes. Or we know this was not. Oh, uh, okay. Just keep listening. Um, so police were also able to identify that Caroline had been shot with a Ruger model gun. Uh, a ten twenty two self-loading rifle, and they also found uh, that the bullets had a, like, gouge mark on it that indicated, like, a silencer had been used. So it had a very unique, to that gun, like, bullet, bullet um, malformity in it. So I think this would be a good time to explain Australia's gun control, or history with gun control, and how it's vastly different from the United States, where who allows its citizens the right to bear arms. But Australia, for, you know, was inhabited by the Aborigines originally, and they didn't have guns. And so it wasn't until 1788 when the first fleet, or the British first fleet, went to um, what is now North New South Wales to make the penal colony. And so obviously they had guns. And then, so, they just had a very different history with it. Um, there was a period, I think it was a, in the 20th century, they made the law that each state governed the gun laws. Um, and it wasn't until, like, the 80s and 90s that there were a bunch of mass shootings. And so right. that was when they Because wasn't there that one that was at a camp? And wasn't that one that was kind of like the one that really yeah. did it because mm-hmm. it was a bunch of kids? Yeah, um, there was also a school. Maybe that was one. I'm yeah, of. but there were—I mean, there were a couple yeah. of them, which is what led to the banning of all semi-automatic rifles and all semi-automatic pump-action shotguns. And also, there was a very strict system of licensing and ownership controls, which included that you could only own a firearm for a genuine reason. And in Australia, a genuine reason is not to protect yourself. Yeah. What's a genuine reason? Hunting or for sport. How is for sport more important than protecting yourself? Well, because they don't think that. Because what is what is is someone. for sport not the same as hunting? I don't know. Maybe it's right? like shooting clay pigeons. Or oh, something. maybe yeah. It's like that kind of a moment. Well, it's like shooting the, I don't, it, the it plates or whatever. Very, yeah. Because it was in the Olympics, I guess it was like there was a shooting thing. I don't fucking know. With handguns, I don't fucking know. So anyways, because of these very strict gun control laws in 1991, it was pretty easy to find out how many people owned a certain type of gun. Whoa. Um, The kind of gun he has was not a semi-automatic, right? Um, you know what, Morgan? It was a Ruger, you said, right? a whole lot about guns. Um, it was, it is... His gun, it was, it's like a Ruger, I think it's a rifle, because there's a difference between, yeah, yep, yeah. self-loading rifle okay. that had a silencer right. on it. So, um, but they were able to narrow it down, even though it's a large number, 55,000. 
that's that's not that many people that's not and that's like crazy that they knew specifically because i mean i don't think and i would imagine not because it's not legal they don't have like gun shows no probably and not. they don't have you know i mean nowadays i i was reading that um people illegally owning guns is pretty common which makes a lot of sense people in america do it too yeah but yeah. still around now this was like pretty fresh and i think i think i read that they literally got rid of like a third of all of the firearms in australia they may have were they throw them in the on, ocean no they like set them on fire Oh. I think, I think. Um, <laughs> Perhaps. So, so, over a year after Caroline and Joanne's bodies were found, there was a man walking through the forest, and he stumbled across a skull who belonged to Deborah Everest. And she had been missing since 1989. So this was before and this Caroline was 91? and Joanne. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Deborah, who was 19, was living in Melbourne. Mel- Melbourne, yeah. Um, and she was friends with this guy who was named James Gibson, who was also 19. Some things I read said that they were boyfriend-girlfriend. Others said that they were just friends. They were close, regardless. Um, and they were very opposites of one another. Uh, um, he yeah, was very, like, alternative, and she was a little more straight-laced. Um, they were like, he has a ponytail, and he wore, like, a black top hat. Love it. Right. So, <laughs> um... James um, convinces him, or convinces Deborah rather, to go along with him to like a music festival that's in Sydney, and from there he was gonna like meet up with some friends and then head down to the southern border town of Aubrey. Um, but Deborah had a sick dad; like he was just like constantly sick, and she helped her mom Pat um, help out. But her mom was like. She's like, you deserve, like, a break. Like, you should go have fun. Mm-hmm. When I was watching the show, it, like, made me cry. Because, obviously, her mom feels really bad yeah. for being like, yeah, no, go on this trip. Yeah. And then, but no one can. There's no way you could ever guess, yeah. <sighs> yeah, you can't expect that the worst possible thing ever in the world is going to happen to your kid. So, Deborah and James left on December 28th, 1989, by train. And both of them had been told by their parents do not hitchhike. But James was like, it's okay because there's two of us and as long as we're together, it'll yeah. be safer than if it was just one of us. So they took a train to Liver- Liverpool, Australia, and they were walking down south along the Hume Highway and they stopped at some shops in Kosher where they met Ivan, who offered to take them where they were going. They drove for about an hour until they pulled over into the Belanglo State Forest. He, again, like, went over into the bush. He, like, subdued them. And immediately he stabs James in the spine. Mm. And this is with a hunting knife. And he was a hunter, obviously. And so he knew about, obviously, the way the body works. That's why he had the gun was because he was a hunter. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, he knew to sever their spine to make them, like, render them, uh, you know, paralyzed, basically. Um, and so he paralyzed, um, James, and then he turned his attention to Deborah. He attacked her. Paralyzed him without killing him is super brutal. It's really, really fucked up. Yeah, Because he had to hear everything that happened to his Yeah, that's what makes it really fucked up. He, um, hit her in the head with a blunt object, and it's completely smeared her jaw, and he ended up, um 
tying her up with her pantyhose and then he raped her and then repeatedly stabbed her. Uh, James was about 100 feet away, unable to move, and again forced to listen to Deborah be murdered. And he eventually, Ivan that is, went over to James and stabbed him some more. And then covered his bodies with some branches and twigs. And two days later, a guy riding his bike found James' camera along the road. And then three months later, James' backpack is found by the side of the road, like it had been thrown from a moving car. And police searched the area, and there were no more other clues. So, obviously, Ivan just tossed it out the window. Um, so, the man who had found Deborah's skull was named Bruce Pryor, and he knew the forest very, very well. He had grown up in the area, and he became very interested in the case, and so he spent... Uh, like hours walking through the forest and like after searching for months he decided to look at this like little lesser known um, trail and he was walking just a little bit and found a hip bone and he picked it up did he know right away it was a hip well he well i think he was a hunter and like Uh... used to seeing bones because he thought initially that it was a kangaroo um hip bone but then he was looking at it and he's like in the bush yeah and uh but it wasn't uh, consistent with a kangaroo and he set it back down and then he walked a little bit further and he found the human skull so that obviously looks different than a kangaroo yeah so um so um even though like he was innocent we know um uh not richard Pryor, bruce Pryor was considered um a suspect which kind of makes sense like it makes sense for him to be really upset about it because he was just trying to help it always also kind of makes sense that the police would want to be like hey how did you come upon these things yeah um so let's see um police uh, are at the area and they find james hat the like top hat that he wore and then they found his mm. skeleton under the branches and police see a connection between Joanne and Carolyn's murders and the murder of James and Deborah. So the police then at this point formed a task force and after about two weeks of searching they found the remains of Simone Schmidl. She had been missing for two years. Whoa. So Simone at the time was 21 and she was from Regensburg in Germany. And she was an experienced traveler. She was super outgoing and adventurous. Mm. In 1990, she went to Sydney towards, like, the end of the year. And um, her dad called her and told her that her mom was going to, like, be visiting Melbourne. And so his mom was like, fuck yeah, I'll go down and visit mom. So in the morning of uh, January 20th, 1991, she travels by bus because the trains were not running this day to Liverpool, and then uh, she begins walking towards Kasula, and on the way she accepts a ride from Ivan. As Simone and Ivan drive, Ivan gets more and more aggressive and abruptly pulls over and pulls out a gun, and then he ties up her hands with like rope and wires, and then he drives into Belangla Forest. He gags her and took her in like into the bush and he immediately stabs her in the spine and when she's down on the ground he stabs her a bunch more times and she was partially clothed when police found her so it is most likely that she was also 
sexually assaulted. Yeah. It sucks that when they're found that long ago that there's no way to really know. Well, and especially because of where they were, <clears throat> animals like, yeah, so. could have taken shit anywhere. Yeah. So, um, three days later, um, the police found the remains of two more people. Um, Gabor, uh, I want to get this right, Neugenbauer and Anya Habschied, two Germans. They had met in Munich where Gabor was training for the military. And Gabor and Anya loved to travel together. And they had been backpacking through Europe and also had been traveling around Asia. And then they arrived in Sydney around Christmas. And they actually, like, called their parents... And their parents were, like, relieved that they were in Australia because some of the places that they'd gone in Europe and in Asia, they were like, oh, that's a little dangerous. And so they're like, finally, they're somewhere safe, which fucking sucks. Side note, <clears throat> in German class, my German name was Anya. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> yeah. So all four Anya. years I was Anya. Anya. So on Boxing Day, Anya and Gabor left the hostel where they were staying and they got on a train um, and went to Liverpool, and then walked along the highway to Kasula. I think Kasula had like these shops that probably that I think was like sounds like Cthulhu. Kasula and Cthulhu, yeah, they do. Um, and I think like where backpackers would probably go a lot, and Ivan, I'm guessing, would hang out here to you know find his victims. So he um, uh, offers to drive them south and. They're in the car, and without warning, Ivan turns on the couple, and he takes out his gun. Gabor resists, and, like, Ivan fires a warning shot Mm. and says, like, I will hurt Anya. Like, you know, do what I say. So he orders Anya to tie up Gabor, and then he tied up Anya himself. And he brings them out to Belenglo, out in the bush, and Anya tries to get away, but Ivan attacks her, and then Gabor trying to protect Anya, like, attacks Ivan, um, but then he shoots Gabor in the head six times. Do we know all of this from his testimony? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So, Ivan drags Anya's body away from Gabor, or drags Anya, rather, away from Gabor's body, and he makes her get down on his knees and tells her to bow her head, and then he takes a huge knife and he decapitates her. Jesus. Yes. So, by November of 1993, seven bodies had been found in Belanglo State Forest. Police believed one person was responsible and that they had a serial killer. At the site where Gabor's body had been found, the police found bullet cases that had been from the same gun used on Caroline Clark, and this gave them a definitive link between the two cases. So, so did he not use a gun in every single <clears throat> time? No. Okay. And um, I'll kind of touch on that a little bit later. That comes up again, that he like killed people differently. Yeah. So uh, the task force said that anyone who had any sort of information um, should call the police and people are calling in and there's one family name that keeps popping up and that is Millette. Mm. So um, people were saying that the brothers were really, really into guns. Um, their fi- family had also had prior run-ins with police. Uh, they were kind of loners who looked after each other. Um, they had the family motto, apparently, 
of if you don't have something to say, make up a good lie. Hmm. Never heard that motto yeah. before. No. Um, <laughs> Never heard that. Not a colloquialism. Not a good, not, a, not like a, doesn't roll off the tongue. No. Um, and the main investigator uh, referred to them, he's like, as Americans would probably say, hillbilly. So they were like equivalent of like, you know, okay. rednecks. So the police get a call from a man who goes by Paul Miller and knows several details of the case, but they find out that Paul Miller is actually Richard Millat, Ivan's younger brother. Police also found out that Ivan was the most gun-obsessed, and that in 1972 he was charged with kidnapping and raping two women, but was never found guilty. So the uh, bullet our ballistics expert for this case is like amazing at like his job because he was the one who noticed um, that the bullets had the very distinctive groove in it that was made by the silencer. So they were able to take the serial number from the batch of bullets that were made in this factory in Victoria and they found out that um, they were sold a year prior to the first murders and they'd been sold to about 55 gun shops all around Australia, half of which were in New South Wales and a few were in the Sydney area. And they followed up with those shops and found that they had sold those bullets to Ivan Millet. Whoa! Yeah. That's some good police work there. That is some great police work. Um, then police uncover a case that happened shortly after the first murders. In late 18... 1988. Nine, that is. Englishman Paul Onions went to Sydney to go back <laughs> sorry. packing. Are we just going to go right past Paul Onions? I do refer to him only as Paul throughout the remainder <laughs> because I will say I'm sorry, but Onions is... I'm so oh, sorry. Oh, I am so sorry. Ooh. But Paul Onions... <laughs> All right, now that we've regained our composure over the name Paul Onions. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, we're to- it's totally fine. We're back. Um, so, yes. I got water. So, um, on January 29th, 1990, Paul set out for Melbourne, hoping to hitch a ride. And once he was in Kasula, he accepted a trip for a man who said his name was Bill. At first, Paul and Bill talk, but Bill a.k.a. Ivan, starts getting quiet. Paul thought that was kind of weird, but he'd never been backpacking before. But you know what? Always, always, always trust your gut. Uh-huh. Like, don't worry about hurting their feelings. Never. Just, you know, deal with that later. <laughs> um, so Bill slash Ivan makes an excuse to pull over, and Paul just gets out of the car to stretch his legs, but Ivan freaks out and is like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, get back in the car. And uh, Paul's like, um, okay. And so he gets back in the car, but as he's doing this, he's looking at the highway and checking for traffic. And so... So, um, when Ivan gets back in the car, he pulls a gun on Paul. And Paul is like, bye, and like darts out of the car. Out of the car, yeah. Watching all of this is a woman in driving a van with her sister and a bunch of their kids, and she watches as Paul runs away and Ivan catches up to him and in the car running, running, um, and like not like tackles him to the ground on like the median, and then um, 
uh, Paul gets away, and then Ivan catches him again, and then Paul starts running, and he runs straight to this lady's car, and is like, let me in the car. He has a gun. At first she was like, I've got kids in my car, but then she had seen what would happen. She's yeah. like, get fucking get in. Yeah. And so she reversed after he got in, and then they saw Ivan retreat, and she like pulled the UA, got out of there, and Paul, um... Damn. Yeah. Work it out, Paul Onions. Yeah, so... Paul, um, like, went to the police station, but they didn't really think it was a very urgent matter and <sighs> just thought it was an attempted robbery. So, it wasn't until three years later, Paul was brought back. Because he didn't really match the, the MO of the killer. Because it was either, like, girls or, like, a couple. There was never just, like, a dude. Oh, well, this was before any of it had even happened. Oh. Yeah. Um, so... Let's see. So Paul, this is three years later now, is back home and mm-hmm. hears about the backpack killer. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And so he thinks it might be Bill. So he calls the police and tells them the story. Um, the woman who saved Paul also calls the hotline and tells them the story. So by 1994, police are pretty sure that the killer is Ivan Millette, but they need to be 100% sure. They bring Paul... Um, back to Australia and he shows the police the spot where the incident happened and it was less than a mile from the turnoff for Belanglo State Park. Ooh. Yeah. So back at police headquarters, Paul is shown a video of a bunch of pictures of dudes with handlebar mustaches and he watches it twice and both times he picks out Ivan Millette. So they go to Ivan's brother's house, Alec, and his wife Joan and they show police a backpack that Ivan had given to Joan, and they identify it as Simone Schmidl's backpack. Now they had enough evidence to charge Ivan. Yeah, they so do. a force of about 300 police moves in on various properties owned by the Millettes because they had reason to believe, obviously, that he was giving these the victims' belongings away to other people mm. so they could check those places, too. So the police find a mountain of evidence and arrest Ivan. They found several weapons and items that had belonged to the victims. They found Simone's water bottle, um, and it had her name scratched off, but under infrared, they could see her name on it. I know, infrared is pretty fucking cool. They also found Paul's pillowcase that had been stolen, and inside it were a bunch of different restraining devices, like ropes and wires, and one was stained with... What ended up being, they found out, Caroline's blood. At Ivan's brother Richard's, they found Caroline and Joanne's sleeping bags and the tent that uh, Caroline had been given to by a friend. Richard, like, swears up and down that it was not her tent. Um, but it still had the, like, pieces, the labels yeah. from the friend. So it's like, how? How? Right. How? Um, initially, Ivan... Yeah, no. Was That's o- a big one. Yeah. Um, so initially, Ivan was only charged with attempted murder of Paul, and because the detectives needed more concrete evidence for them for the seven murders, they didn't believe. Even that though they had found, the water bottle, and they had the tent? that. But um, the dude in charge was like, "I don't think we have our smoking gun yet." Mm. So, literally speaking of guns, so at Ivan's mm. house, hidden in the wall, they found parts of the ten twenty two Ruger. That had been disassembled, 
disassembled rather, and there are only certain parts of the gun there. So the ballistics detective involved brought the um, those gun parts to the station. He disassembled another 10.22 Ruger and reassembled. reassembled it with those missing parts and tested it by, they had like a pool of water that they shoot bullets in, looked at the bullet that he had shot um, with the bullet that was found in Caroline's head and around there and it like under a microscope and it wow. matched up perfectly. So ballistic evidence was like boom shakalaka. Love yeah. that. Yeah. So on May 31st, 1994, Ivan was charged with all seven backpacker murders. His lawyer or solicitor, John Marsden, had Ivan tested, or he wanted rather, Ivan to be tested by a psychiatrist to see if he was even fit to stand trial. But Ivan was, like most psychopaths, a huge narcissist. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like Ted, Ted Bunny did the same thing. He got really, really pissed when one of his lawyers suggested that he had psychological issues. Yeah. And um, during court, while the magistrate was talking to them, Ivan was just like, I've sacked James, not James Marsden, John Marsden as my solicitor. And, you know, he's no longer my solicitor. And uh, that was the last he said he ever saw of him. And so the prosecution's case seemed really good. They had Paul, who had been abducted by Ivan. They had direct evidence of the victim's belongings, and they had DNA evidence, and then they had the very damning ballistic evidence. Um, the defense's case, on the other hand, was that other Malats, not Ivan, were responsible uh, for the murders. Mm-hmm. And the Crown Prosecutor, Mark uh, Tedeschi, gave his like final summation to the jury and he was like um he's like i'm not required to prove that or i cannot prove that ivan was not like acted alone but that's not what i need to prove i need to prove that That he he did did it it. yeah so it was in july and the jury began their deliberation Three days later, later, Ivan was charged with all seven counts of murder and the abduction and attempted murder of Paul. Onions. For his crimes. Period. Again, yeah, for his crimes against Paul Onions, he was sentenced to six years. And for Six the- years for just Paul? Paul deserves more than that. Paul does deserve way more than that. Mr. Onions deserves more right. and better. Well, but I'm sure that what happened next, the other sentencing, didn't suck suck because he got seven consecutive sentences to prison yeah yeah um for the term of his natural life so i love like because that that too feels like i mean i don't know if like what merits like how many counts of a life sentence you get but like it just is it based on all the lives that you took yeah so well he got that means that he was found guilty of that and so each count of murder, murder is another life is, sentence mm-hmm. because wow. well yeah i mean it, because he's gonna that only just because they're gonna be charged for each murder if it was just one of the murders but he was found guilty of all of them and so the for same sure. sentencing so they're like for the murder of this person you get this many years and so that adds up yeah <laughs> dang yeah so while in prison ivan maintained his innocence he attempted to escape several times. He would go on hunger, hunger strikes and he would swallow razor blades. And one time he went so far as to cut off his finger and tried mailing it to like the high crown, like high court. For what reason? Other than him being crazy, I don't 
really fucking know. So, to this day, there is still speculation whether or not Ivan acted alone and apparently had an incestuous relationship with his younger sister, Shirley, who helped him with the murders. So, wait, he maintained his innocence, but he also gave, like, testimony of exactly what happened? Because otherwise, how do we know all these things happened? Well, he talked about it um, later on, I think. Or he, no, well... He had to have said it to somebody for these details to right. be out. But he must have recanted or something. I feel embarrassed. I don't have that information. <laughs> uh, but he had I'm to have wondering. admitted to it at some point, obviously. Um, yeah, maybe. He must. He had to have said Is something. Is he still alive? I'll get to that. Um, so, like I said, people still think that possibly it was two people. And like you were saying earlier, because um, like Caroline was killed differently than... Uh, Joanne was. Um, they think it might have been two people, but the head detective is has no doubt in his mind that it was just Ivan. Yeah. Based on the fact that in hit the case in 1972, he acted alone. With Paul Onions, he acted alone. Right. He had all of the uh, belongings of the victims, and he gave them to other people. Like yeah. they didn't just get them. Like maybe, themselves. I mean, like maybe at like during one of them, maybe he had like a family member there. Because obviously, I mean, unless he just gave these people his like not gifts, but like the water bottle, the whatever. Like maybe they kind of maybe they knew something. I mean, it, they're a very they well for the most part they were pretty deceitful, and they all stood yeah. by each other. One brother. Boris has stepped away from the family Mm. um, because the majority of them think that he's innocent and he said that it was so good that he was caught because he was so dangerous because he was so so charming he was so charming and so deceitful and like so he's kind of like the Australian Ted Bundy a little bit yeah a little bit Um, so also, there's, like, several unsolved murders that police think that Ivan committed, and there is actually a few that he's really, really good for, but there's just not enough evidence mm-hmm. to prove it. Um, so, then, flash forward to 2010, Ivan's great-nephew, Matthew Malott, 17 years old, murders his childhood best friend. Wow. With a... At what age? Medieval... He was 19. Okay. And his friend was 19, and there was a third. With a medieval knife? No, with a medieval double-edged axe. I feel like I've heard this story. Yeah. And the three boys, and he did it in Belangla Forest. Yeah, I've heard this story. he idolized his uncle so much. And he was like, this is what Malats do. And so they all went out there under the guise of getting super high. um, This is what, like 2000s? Yeah, so it's 2010. Um, so their friend David, who is the one that they murdered, uh, he was like rolling the joint and then, uh, Matthew like called him to the back of the car and then killed him. And while the other friend was, uh, audio recording the whole thing on his fucking phone. Oh. Yeah. Um, he is in jail, jail for how, and he was 19. Well, yeah, he's a well, he was adult. 17. So I think he uh, he's not in for. I thought you said he was nineteen. No, seventeen. So yeah, Um, so you asked how Ivan was doing. Not good. He died last year in October. Oh, almost a year ago from stomach cancer, and apparently he was like in and out of the hospital, and like 
he was diagnosed like in May and the like doctors were like, you don't have very long to live. And he was in the hospital and the doctors were like, there's really not anything we could do with him. How old is he? He was in his um, 70s, I believe. Okay. Um, or 80s, I think. And um, the people at the jail were like, or prison rather, were like, well, we're taking him back to the prison. We're not going to have him take up a bed that could be for someone who yeah. is actual deserving. He is a piece of shit. So Damn. he died in his prison cell alone of in cancer. the middle of the night. Yep, of cancer. And that's the fucking story of Ivan Milat. Damn. Yup. That was a long story. I was gonna say, how long are we in? Yeah, we're about... This is going to be a long episode, guys. We are about 47. Okay, cool. Well, then I'm going to just jump right into my first... Um, I cannot wait to not talk for I get that. Um, so this is the mysterious disappearance of Haley Dodd. So um, I also, I watched a YouTube video about this. There is a Australian YouTuber named Samantha Melanie, and she just does all Australian true crime stories, basically. Awesome. And Love so that. I watched, because I was trying to kind of like, I didn't want to do like one of the, I, well, we didn't want to do the, the snow town. We really didn't. We can't stress and, like enough. I looked into some of the other ones and I don't know. I just like didn't. Nothing rang a bell. And then, like, when I got to her stuff, it was a lot of, like, solved missing person cases. So that's what this is. In case you're wondering. Sorry. No, that's cool. Anyways, Haley Dodd was born on the 30th of November in 1981. She was said by family and friends to be super happy and a fun, loving girl. She lived in Mandora, a city near Perth. 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 Um, Haley and her close friend, Lisa Fredrickson, decided in 1999, and this is when she was, like, 17, so, like, around the time that she was probably, like, finishing up with school, because they finish sooner than we do in Australia. They do. Yeah. Uh, they decided in 1999 that they wanted to go on a little adventure. So they decided to do so by ways of hitchhiking, which the girls had done before. However, Haley's family did not know this is the way that they were traveling because she didn't want to worry them. She didn't want them to like talk her out of it. So this was in the 90s so that this was the, happening. During this time in Western Australia, there was a lot of missing persons um, and murder cases that were linked to hitchhiking, such as the Claremont serial killings. Oh, right. I briefly mm-hmm. saw that one. But then also... Um, but yeah, the Claremont serial killings, um, they're a string of murders that took place about two to three years prior. Um, and the man who was arrested wasn't even arrested until 2016. So, like, they were hitchhiking when this when he was still at large, the, the Claremont guy. Because okay. he was doing it in that area. Okay. Um, and then also your guy, Ivan Milat, had been arrested for picking up hitchhikers and killing them in 96. So, like, it was definitely something people knew that people were doing around this oh, time. Oh, yeah. So they didn't, the obviously. Yeah, so they were like, this isn't out of the realm of possibility for someone to be picked up. Well, that's why they didn't want to tell their parents that that's the way that they were traveling. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what they told them. Maybe that they were taking trains or buses or automobiles. I don't know. Yeah. Um... Just walking. But, you know, when you're, like, obviously people probably would say, like, well, why would they do that? That's so stupid. But, like, they were 17-year-old girls, and apparently Perth at this time was, like, a very safe area. Because it's kind of more of, like, a, not, like, rural, but, like... I've heard, I've read that it's, like, a very, um, it was a very planned city. Mm. Like, um, because the Snowtown murders happened, like, in the, um... 
uh, like suburbs mm-hmm. of Perth, mm-hmm. and so I learned a little bit about Perth before I decided not to do that one. Right. But yeah, um, it's a very it's kind of yeah, like you said in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But. So I think they felt again because they were together, two of them. They probably felt safe doing it. Um, so on the twenty second of July, nineteen ninety nine, the two friends set off, leaving Mandura and traveling to Dongra, where Haley. Um, was going to be working Haley and her friend. They were going to be working as a rouseabout, which I learned means basically it's just someone that doesn't have any specific skill, but will just kind of work any odd jobs um, specifically, usually in farms. And they were working in like a sheep farm. Love that. Yeah. And um, Haley decided one, like around like maybe a couple of days later on the 29th that she wanted to go on a last minute trip and that she was going to do so on her own. She was going to go to her friend's farm that was in Mora, which was uh, a little bit closer to Perth, but it was like a two hour trip from where they were in Dongra. Okay. So she told Lisa that she would be back soon. She specifically said that she would be back because she wanted to be back in time for their job to start because I hadn't fully started yet. Okay. Um, so when she left, Lisa gave Haley a pocket knife and uh, also $5 so that she could call her when she arrived. Sadly, though, Lisa never heard from her friend again after hugging her goodbye. Mm-hmm. Haley arrived in Bandingera. Bandingera is the way that I've heard it being said. Cool. Cannot say that I'm saying it correctly. Uh, by ways of a truck driver that she met at a gas station, he was, like, in his uh, truck, and she kind of, like, just came up to the window and, like, knocked on it, asking if she could get a ride from him. Uh, to Mora specifically, and he let her know that he could drop her off close, and that's how she ended up in Bandingera, Bandingera, which is like, they're really close. They're like maybe 30 minutes away from each other, Mora and Bandingera. So when she arrived in Bandingera, she made a phone call on a public telephone, but we don't know who she made the call to. And then shortly after um, making that call, she was at like a, I think she was at like a gas station or a petrol station, and shortly after, so she got another ride, and when, that was when she was hitchhiking along Northwest Road. So at 11 a.m., Haley was dropped off about seven miles or 11 kilometers east of Bangangara. So not quite to Mora yet, but much closer. And from 11 a.m. to 11.45 a.m., more than 10 witnesses reported that they saw Haley walking north west north walking on that northwest road Haley was last seen on the side of the road kind of like rustling through her bag um some of the witnesses reported that they were like driving and they saw her and then like soon after they like were driving back they did not see her specifically a husband and wife were the husband was dropping his wife off at like i don't know where exactly but she said specifically turn around to make sure that girl is okay because it was kind of like a desolate it wasn't like a it wasn't a super like normal road for someone just to be standing on the side of especially Haley even though she was 17 looked really young for her age okay um but I believe when they went back she wasn't there so this was the last time Haley was ever seen um, a search for Haley began after friends and family had not heard from her and the friend in which she was going to visit said Haley never arrived. A man testified that around the time of day when Haley was last seen, so like around like 11, 11.45, he heard a girl scream, like kind of in that area. And so the man, the truck driver who had first driven Haley to Bangangara, he called the police when he uh, recognized Haley's picture on the news 
and saw that she was missing. He told them how he had taken her from Dongora to Bangangara, and he said that Haley looked about 14, even though she was 17, and he told him that he had given her some money because she said she didn't have any, and he wanted her to be able to get some food, Mm. and that he also had given her his phone number in case she needed another ride, but then he said he had never heard from her again. Um, Early in the search for Haley, a man by the name of Francis John Wark called police in regards to Haley's disappearance, citing he was a local to the area. Wark had been in a motorbike accident and was actually in the hospital because of that accident when he claims that he first heard about Haley being missing. He told police he had, in fact, not seen anyone hitchhiking the day of Haley's disappearance and that he would have noticed as it was not something that was super common in that area, especially with young women. So basically, he called to say, I live in the area. I haven't seen anybody hitchhiking today. Huh. That's really all he said. So they were like, okay. And so then police decided to go question him. They also questioned his roommate at the time. They lived very close to where Haley was last seen, and his roommate was actually a convicted pedophile. Uh, Several other people of interest were questioned, including basically these two other guys who did go on to, like, murdering other people, but people, but they, but, but they don't think it was Haley. And... Of all the people that they questioned, Wark and his roommate and these two included, the police said that there was no way they could guarantee that they did do it, and there was no way they could guarantee that they didn't do it, huh. based on okay. like their conversations with them. Uh-huh. Um, when Wark was questioned, he said that he was not in the area at the time of Haley's disappearance, and that he was doing his weekly rituals at the time, where he said he went to Mora. Uh, and he would return videos, and then they said that he hired more videos, which I'm assuming means, like, renting more videos? That sounds great. Yeah. This is the 90s. Everyone's renting movies. Everyone's and hiring going movies. To Blockbuster or whatever. Of course. Um, he paid a few bills. He went to the supermarket for groceries, and he also went to the butcher's. So he claims that he returned home around 1 p.m. on the 29th and without even putting all... Well, he didn't say this, but like it was later found that he didn't even put any of the groceries that he bought away before he just took off. He went on a trip on his motorbike to a party, and that's when he got into the accident. Oh, okay. Yeah, so obviously <laughs> he was driving maybe a little recklessly. Mm-hmm. Um, police definitely thought that Work's alibi seemed a bit off, but there wasn't really any real evidence. Like I said, they basically could, there was no way for them to commit anyone. And there was also no way to completely rule out any of those four people that they talked to. So Haley's disappearance kind of went unanswered for a very long time. In fact, it wasn't until a break in the case came in 2013. Damn. When they were, they were just kind of like trying to revisit the case and they were actually like looking into works, um, like statements and his alibi specifically. And they were just like, this just doesn't like sound right. This doesn't add up. All the things he's saying just don't make sense. And it's like weird. So they decided to kind of like go into more of a search of him specifically. So, um, at the time of like when they were searching all of those four guys, they had taken the car work was driving at the time when he was like getting all of his groceries during that time. It was a used ute. (laughs) Which is uh, a utility van. They call them utes. Cute. They call SUVs four-wheel drives. Cute. And I'm like, that could be anything. <laughs> so, in 2013, they were re-examining, like, the seat cover of that car, because they still had had it in evidence. And um, 
Uh, so a forensic scientist, Tracy Horner, who was examining the car seat, discovered and noticed what no one had ever found before to be an earring caught in the fabric. This earring matched a drawing that Lisa, Haley's friend, had made of what Haley had been last seen wearing, which was uh, light brown hiking boots, blue denim jeans, a black V-neck top, gray men's a gray men's jacket with a hood, silver sunglasses, and she was carrying a light brown backpack with the words equip on the flap and the earrings. They were kind of like a cross, but they were more like a, like an Egyptian ankh. Okay. Kind of like okay. dangly earring. Okay. And it had a little turquoise gem in the middle of it. So that was exactly what her friend had drawn in 1999, and that was exactly what they found in the car seat. Fuck. So the shop owner specifically was questioned about the earring and he described them as being mass produced and very popular, which kind of made the discovery a little bit feeble in regards to actually arresting work, especially because the earring was found 14 years after the disappearance specifically. Yeah, that wouldn't work in court. Right. It's good. It's really good circumstantial, yeah. though. But uh, However, a human hair had been recovered in the seat cover. This hair was tested in several labs. They were actually tested in two different labs in Australia, and they were even tested in the United Kingdom as well to assure <laughs> it was done properly, uh, and it took months. But experts found that there was a 7.2 million to one chance that this hair was Haley's. Okay. Basically means that they can't, without a shadow of a doubt, say that it was Haley's hair, mm -hmm. but they can more certainly say that it is than say that it isn't. Fuck yeah, I love that. Yeah. So this was enough to, um, you know, get things yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. Or charge him with something. So... In 2013, Wark was unsurprisingly serving a 12-year sentence, but he was oh. all the way in Queensland, which is literally yeah, like, it's like 2,000 miles away from mm -hmm. where this was happening, Yeah, um, for assault. Uh, the woman who he assaulted is known only as Miss S, or I'm sorry, Miss M. I don't know why I said S, probably because M.S., Miss. Miss, yeah. Miss M. So, M. Miss M., uh, similarly to Haley, was looking for a ride on a secluded road. Francis Wark had offered to drive Miss M home, but instead drove her to his home, where he tied her up and physically and sexually assaulted her for several hours. Miss M remembers Wark asking her specifically if he could keep her earring. Uh, fuck. Yeah, which he did. Since the earring was such a big part of the investigators' findings, they could not ignore this information. Miss M was able to get away, and that's how she reported work, and that's how he was charged. So, uh, work maintained his innocence and kept his same alibi when questioned at the end of the interview. He was quoted saying, I'm not guilty, you're wasting your time. In December of 2015, work was extradited extradited to Perth and was charged with Haley's murder. Fuck yeah. The trial didn't start until 2017. Work pleaded not guilty to the charge against him. The prosecutor's case was that Mark had in some way lured Haley into the car, intentionally killed her, and disposed of her body in some way. They argued that Work's proclivity for violence against women was apparent and made him the sort of person likely to have committed this sort of crime especially with the similarity of picking up a woman in a remote area. Also, with the case of Miss M's earring, there is propensity to take a trophy 
Mm-hmm. And so the prosecution stated that when its four planks or strands of rope were considered as a whole, the opportunity he had to kill her, the earring in question, the propensity of the case, and the DNA, there is not a shadow of doubt that this man killed Haley. The defense argued that Wark had always maintained his innocence and any small error that his story may have had from 1999 versus 2013 could easily be explained by the lapse of time in which it had happened. Yeah, also, that's easy. by the time this case was happening, a lot of the witnesses had actually passed away and died. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have that witness testimony. And then even with the witness testimony they had, a lot of them were like, I can't, I don't remember this day that was 18 years ago. Like, yeah. I don't remember, you know. Um, the defense states that it is, disa- the defense stated that it was unrealistic, if not impossible, for work to have done all of his errands and find the time to pick up Haley, kill her, and dispose of her body in the short window that there had been. They also brought up the lack of evidence until uh, 14 years after the incident took place. They suggested the earring would have could have been planted by police and actually called the police system at the time shambolic, uh, specifically with handling evidence, and that there was no way to confirm it had it hadn't been tampered with. The hair DNA evidence was also called into question by the defense that the hair was found was described as black and coarse, whereas Haley's hair was said to be light brown and much more fine. So that was like another thing that the defense said. But in 2018, Francis John Work was sentenced to a 21-year minimum, um, which in... So basically, he had a 21-year minimum sentence, and you aren't able to be up for parole in Australia, or specifically in Western Australia, because they have the no-body, no-parole law, which means if you haven't found the body, you cannot be paroled, which means convicted killers can't be released without a body being found. Very, very interesting. Yeah, so he was never up for parole. However, this year, February 2020... Oh, shit. Work won his appeal... Uh, no, it was kind of like confusing and I couldn't totally figure out how, but basically something had been messed up as far as like something the judge either like had the evidence or I don't even know exactly what it was, but he is now being retried and um, his case is going to continue in February of 2021. Oh shit. So this is not over. No, neither of my cases are over. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. So that was the story of Haley. Haley Dodd. That name sounds familiar. Is that not the girl's name in um, She's All That? Haley Dodd. No, it's um, it's Lainey something. Boggs. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So her. So it is a solved case as far as the fact that like he has been arrested for it. Yeah, he's but, still convicted at this point. His he just has the, yeah. the appeal is yeah. Um, the earring to me is the most damning evidence like 100% like that's just like I mean yes it is it was mass produced but like what are the odds? the photo like I'll show you a photo of the earring cuz they have like a picture of it. It looked like it's old, you know, like right. Like it'd been there a while. It. That's fucking crazy dude so so my next killer is john wayne glover i know how weird how crazy john wayne is such a popular first middle name combo and it must have been around this ish area because i think that they were born in kind of around the same time but yeah 
he was John Wayne Glover, and he was known as the Granny Killer. And I hate that. Right. So I also like saw him, so I know what he looks like. He looks kind of like John he Wayne looks Gacy, like John Wayne Gacy. And there's, but I again, couple, I scrolled quickly because yeah, I didn't there's know a couple anything other about him. I I knew that Ivan was at least like a hitchhiker killer, but I know nothing about John Wayne. Uh, not Macy Gacy. Gacy. John Wayne, not Gacy. John Wayne, not William H Macy. Gacy or Gacy or Gacy. <laughs> okay. Love that. So we don't love John Wayne Glover though. So, um, I forgot at one point like the difference between the northern and southern hemisphere and so um i was like listening to the show and they're like it was the first day of autumn march 1st and i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah australia's summer is like our winter and our winter is like their summer i mean it's almost like they're on a different side of the it's crazy um but like that explains to me so much um, because I know uh, Halloween is not that big in Australia and the thought of like celebrating Halloween in spring is like outrageous to me. Yeah, it just April. It, it wouldn't seem Think of right. doing it in April. That's when everything's doing. coming alive. I mean, that's a little more like America or uh, zombie whereas like our Halloween is everything dying. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> a weird thought that I've never thought of. If you're Australian, how do you feel about Halloween? They're like, never done it. So, <laughs> let's see. So, yeah, like I said, it was the first day of autumn. It was March 1st. And, um, or maybe, no, no, I'm sorry. I, for some reason in my notes, blabbed on about that. So, anyways, on 11 January 1989, Margaret Todd Hunter... 84 years old, was walking down the road in Mossman, which is a very, like, lofty, nice suburb, northern suburb of Sydney, Australia, and Glover spotted Margaret while he was driving, and then he parked his car. He approached Margaret and punched her in the face. Oh my god! He stole money from her purse, and then he went to the local Mossman RSL club, which is, like, the American Legion, VHF. Um, It's a place where veterans go. And he spent her money there. Investigators concluded that this was a mugging, but they didn't think they had very much hope of who committed it. Mm -hmm. So she lived. So on March 1st, the first day of autumn in Australia, uh, 1989, um, in the Sydney suburb, again, 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill... Um, is a widow and she lives in a little apartment on the main street and it's the afternoon and she hits up the shops and she's walking home she lives in this apartment building where it's kind of like a block of apartments um, and she gets to the front door when Glover behind her hits her in the head with a hammer and she falls down and then he hits her a couple more times steals money from her purse and then runs away um, like a little bit later, these two boys who were visiting relatives at the apartment building found Gwendolyn. They called police, um, but Gwendolyn died in um, the hospital that night. The police had no leads and no witnesses and nothing to connect this attack to the one of Margaret. And there also wasn't any forensic evidence because they thought she fell. Mm-hmm. And so, well-meaning neighbors washed down 
the crime scene uh, because it wasn't until she got to the hospital that doctors were able to, um, you know, look at her injuries and realize that they are not consistent with that of a fall. They are consistent with the attack. So, what year was this again? Sorry. Um, this was 1989. Okay, so all of our stuff happened happens in the around the same in the exact time. same time frame. Yeah, literally. Because mm-hmm. um, even my next story too. That's crazy. Yeah, both of mine happened around the same yeah. time, and kind of in the same area. Which is it was it was crazy. wild in Australia in the late 80s, early 90s. Just wild. It was wild. It's kind of like how all of I guess for us they like a lot of the major major like serial killing happened in the 70s, like 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. a lot of the 70s, a lot. So, uh, let's see. Also, um, Glover had uh, removed Gwendolyn's pantyhose and underwear, but there was not any evidence of sexual assault. Investigators were like, mm, that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So, um, May 9th, 1989, Glover was walking along the road when he saw Lady Winifreda Ashton. She was the widow of Sir William Ashton, who was famed landscape artist. Um, and she actually lived near Ashton Park, which he designed. And um, in the afternoon on May 9th, she left the RSL club after playing some bingo. She did pretty good, so she went to the shops and then walked home. Unaware that she was being followed by Glover, she checked her mailbox, that was the end of the driveway of the apartment block that she lived in, and walked up to the building, and she went to the bin room, or the garbage room, uh, to throw away some junk mail, where Glover came up from behind her and hit her in the head with a hammer. He pushed her down to the ground. Yeah. Also, that's like, so, we know now that it is a hammer, but at the time, um, Forensic could not figure out what, what. The they knew it was, was a blunt object, but they did not know that it was a hammer. So he must have not been using both ends of it, just the hammer. Well, side. you'll find out why actually. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. You're I just... try to deduce things too. Well, quickly. no, you're just making speculations. It's totally, yeah. totally cool. So um, he pushed her to the ground and started violently banging her head against the concrete oh my God. floor. That's awful. Yeah, he removed her pantyhose and strangled her so tightly that it cut through the skin on her neck. And this was inside the apartment building. Yeah, this was like in the rubbish oh my room, God. bin room. Um, he took money from her purse left and went to the Mossman RSL. Police had found Lady Ashton on the floor in the bedroom and her legs were bare, which again made them think that this was a sex crime, but they found no evidence of that. Again, they had no witnesses to connect um, this murder with Gwendolyn's, but uh, or no, wait. No, they even though they didn't have a witness, they do connect it to Gwendolyn's. Um, and the entire area was canvassed and an identikit was um, created, um, but like with the kill before, well-meaning neighbors scrubbed down the crime scene before mm. because again they thought she fell down. Oh my gosh! So there was nothing there, no forensic evidence for yeah. the police to be able to find. So um, they made an identikit, so like a police sketch. Um, uh, it was kind of like a disheveled, kind of like druggy, junky-looking guy, um, younger, and kind of like a skateboarder-type guy. Um, but they called in Dr. Rod Milton, the same guy who assessed um, Ivan Millat, the forensic psychiatrist, 
and he prepared a psychological profile of this killer and he said that the killer was employed and he was a local and he had a peculiar relationship with significant women in his life and he may possibly have a military background um but because of the police sketch and because of all the information that they had been the little information that they had been given by the public they thought that it was a teenager so police kept in close contact with local high schools also they thought it might be a teenager because of the time of day because it was kind of all these things happened around the time when people would get out from school Mm -hmm. so they also posted police officers like around the town um that were there to you know assist with elderly women and um i guess a lot of the old women were like very independent and were like we don't need no help we're good i love that but at the same time they probably felt very they probably made them feel safer knowing that if they needed somebody Mm -hmm. they would be there they also had um like uh meetings like uh, city council meetings that the like old women would go to and Mm -hmm. they would give them like tips on how to protect themselves um so on the 18th of October in 1989, Doris Cox, 86, was going for just a little walk on the footpath outside of her retirement village when Glover spotted her as he was leaving the post office, and he followed her to a secluded stairwell where he attacked her. He grabbed her by the head and just started smashing it into a brick he wall. all about head crushing. He's like Jason Voorhees. He's fucked up. Yeah. He is deep-seated aggression yeah fuck Um, so doris actually survived this attack and again people thought that she had fallen over and again neighbors cleaned up the crime scene huh but even though doris had lived unfortunately she was not able to give a good description of her attacker because she severed from very very severe dementia Mm. police actually how old was she she was um 86 oh um, this makes me sad yeah like her face was like i mean it looked horrible they showed a picture of it and they like held up like a mirror for her to see and they were like doris who did this to you and she said that's not me oh my god no. so she was in she was in really bad shape which makes it so Poor much more doris. fucked up that people people take advantage I of know. people like that because they know that they can which is fucking gross um even though doris had um not died the it was still connected to the other two murders um and people said that they had seen a teen skateboarding on the footpath so this idea of what the uh killer was was still very prominent in people's mind on november 2nd 1989 in lane cove which is another northern suburb but it's a little further away from Mossman. Dorothy Binky, 78, is walking home, and Glover approached her, and they started talking. You know, um, he was really, really nice to her. He offered to carry her groceries for him, and when they got back to her apartment, she actually invited him in for a cup of tea, and he declined. And um, later, he said that in that moment, he had decided he wasn't going to kill her. So, she was really nice. I guess, but because he, I don't, we, I don't know why. Because as soon as he left Dorothy's, he passed Margaret Pod, an eighty-five-year-old widow who was making her way home, and he immediately turned around and hit her in the back of the head with a blunt object. 
and she collapsed and he hit her again and again on the side of the head he removed her underwear and pantyhose and stole her her purse and nobody saw what happened her body was found by a schoolgirl, and she went to her mom and they called the police and um again everyone thought she fell down So before doctors were able to assess her injuries and let police know that it was an attack, again, the entire crime scene had been scrubbed. Oh my god. Um, Sometimes old people don't fall. I know. They're thinking all these old women are falling over. Like They they must have in some way started connecting the dots there. Like, why do all these ladies keep falling down? You know, you would really fucking hope. So because this murder happened in a different suburb, people thought that maybe it was a copycat killer. Possibly. But also at this time, uh, Glover acquired the nickname of the Granny Killer. So within 24 hours of killing, he killed his fourth victim, 81-year-old Olive Cleveland. Olive's cute little old lady names. I know, and they are, were as adorable as you might be picturing them in oh, your head. Oh, you've seen the photos? Oh, yeah, they oh. showed all of them. They were adorable. Not that there's no old people that aren't adorable, but these women were especially adorable um, and seemed to be, like, amazing people. Um, so Olive lived in a retirement community in Belrose, north of Mossman. Um, this was also, this was pretty far away. But she was, like, sitting on a bench, just, like, enjoying the view when Glover came and sat next to her on the bench and started chatting with her. She started to feel a little uncomfortable, and she got up to leave, and he grabbed her, and he forced her down a ramp into a secluded area where he smashed her skull with a blunt object. He pulled up her skirt and removed her pantyhose. I'm hating the pantyhose thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And used them to strangle her. He pulled the fabric so tight that it was embedded into her neck. Um, Another thing that Glover always did with his victims was he would take off the women's shoes and set them very neatly next to them, next to their walking stick. This is a weird thought that I'm going to interject with. Imagine living, like, your whole life and being like, I've, like, you know, never been in something crazy you get murdered when you're like in your 80s yeah that's like not a time of your life crazy like no one ever thinks of that i mean because we're not old like that but yeah if you think about it like that that's quite you're like you've lived through so much you would never imagine that this stage in your life this is when that happens yeah Yeah. that is crazy it's just a weird yeah no i like that interjection um thank you so again they thought olive fell and they scrubbed down the crime scene. Do these people not have, like, face, like face injury? They do. They have all kinds of injuries, and How including How do you think places. someone just fell if the back of their head, the front of their head? I'm guessing they have, have got some other injuries. They think that it was just, like, really heavy falls that they took, and maybe, like, they hit their head off of several places. No, I've seen old people fall, y'all, and it's not that fucking brutal. I mean, it's I mean, really not a good time, but it's not that brutal. Yeah. So, again, they were left with no evidence. Police, at this point, were fucking baffled. They were like, how is someone killing so many women in broad daylight and no one is saying anything? 
anything. So I think it's pretty obvious at this point that they have the profile of the killer very wrong. Clearly, it has to be someone that other people seeing old women with this person wouldn't think it to be weird. Yeah. Clearly, it has to be someone older. Yeah. Um, someone that they would think maybe it was like, you know, because obviously because of the gift of time, we know that it was Glover who yeah. was 57. And he could have easily been like one of their sons or like their nephews or mm-hmm. something. So even though there was not any sexual abuse, Dr. Milton says that the strangling the, of these women... Yeah, the pantyhose thing makes it weirdly sexual. Yeah, like, he, you can't take someone's undergarments off without it being sexual assault. It is. Oh, it is 100%. But he said that it was, like, for him, it was a way of sexually a bit embarrassing them. Yeah, exactly. It's disgusting. Which is really disgusting. Yeah. Because especially when it's an older woman, it, or just anyone, that's disgusting. Anyone. It's gross. It's fucking. Nasty. <laughs> it's gross. It's gross. So, yeah, when you told me your story was gross, I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure. And now I'm like, yeah, it's fucking gross. Yeah, no, this is gross. Um, so at not this, the first one wasn't right, of course, and not that yours wasn't dealer. Um, so at this point, a task force is created, and the government doubled the reward. Um, for information on people had that would potentially uh, catch the killer. So, um, Mur- Muriel Burl Falconer was an incredibly sharp minded 93 year old. <sighs> she was basically independent. She still lived in her big ass uh, Federalist style home, yes, which I looked Muriel. up and they, it's like a cool Australian style house, and I loved it. And maybe when I heard that it was Federation style, I thought of Star Wars just a little bit. Right. Yeah, I have no idea what Federation style means. Look it up. It's cute. I only know colonial style because that's what our parents' house is. It's Dutch like colonial. Dutch colonial. Yeah. Um, looks like the side of a barn. So her neighbors, because she is 96 years old, are very, very protective of her. And including her one friend, Maggie, would like warn her about the granny killer because... She would never lock her back door. And Maggie would be like, girl, you gotta lock your back door. Um, actually, what Maggie did say was, Mrs. Falconer, someone will come in here one day and bop you off. Whoa. Um, and Muriel said, they just will want my money and I'll tell them where it is. So one day, um, Muriel is walking home from the shops when Glover sees her walk by the Buena Vista Hotel where he was sitting at. He goes to his car and grabs his hammer and he follows her home. She gets to the front door and she was partially deaf. Um, mm. So Glover silently snuck up behind her and put his hand over her mouth so she wouldn't make a noise and then repeatedly hit her like around the head and the neck. She fell to the floor and Glover removed her pantyhose. She regained consciousness and cried out for help, but then he hit her on the head and she became unconscious again. And then he used her pantyhose to strangle her, and he took money from her, and then neatly arranged her shoes before leaving. Um, the next day, neighbors began to get a little worried because um, Muriel got Meals on Wheels, and her lunch was still sitting outside on like by the front door, which was not common for her. So Maggie went over to check on her. Um, she actually used a spare key to get into the house, and she found Muriel's body. Um, and she was a trained nurse, and she could tell by the smell that 
um, Muriel had been dead for a little while. And thank fucking God, Maggie was like, I immediately knew that it was the granny killer. So, all the forensic evidence was still there. Uh-huh. Maggie was... Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, now they finally could do it. And thank God, because Glover had left a bloody footprint behind on the carpet. And that they found that this the shoe print that was left was of a shoe that was generally worn by older people. Hmm. I mean, like, you know, like a hush puppy or something. <laughs> like uh, a New Balance. <laughs> I was honestly Morgan thinking New Balance, too. Um, so detectives did not want the killer to know that they had his footprints in case Glover got rid of the shoes. So they didn't tell the media and Maggie was like sworn to secrecy. However, the lot next to Muriel's house was having construction done and people saw the police taking casts of the footprints that were outside um, because basically since he walked in blood, there was a perfect trail of where he had gone. Um, And so word got out and it was on the news and Glover was actually sitting at home watching the six o'clock news and saw footage of the police casts and like taking shoe prints but he was like they're never gonna catch me um and he didn't get rid of the shoes but he did go to the garage and he cleaned off the head of the hammer with hydrochloric acid Mm -hmm. um at this time also a young man who was considered to be very like psychotic um, became a prime suspect and was put under like 24 surveillance. They didn't really talk very much about that other than even though all this is going on, they had somebody like that they, they liked for it. Questioning, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so detect- detective Paul Tuxford had doubts um, about, you know, this guy being the killer. Uh, and he questioned Maggie again, and she said that she had seen a portly, gray-haired, middle-aged man wearing a silver suit in the air that afternoon. Mm. And Detective Tuxford was like, why didn't you say that before? And she's like, I thought I did. And so he went back to the task force and then uh, checked like the different crime reports for that area, but this time looking for men with gray hair. And he found a report about an unnamed gray hair man who had um assaulted a woman the year previous and that woman was margaret uh todd hunter whoa and so it took a year for them to finally connect that to the granny killer case but it was very important because you know the suspect in question there was not what you know, people thought that the killer was. Uh So by this time, though, Margaret had moved to Queensland and Detective Tuxford went there to interview her and she was able to provide an accurate description for a police sketch. And this one was wildly different from the first one. And it looked exactly like him. Like the picture that you have seen is Uh the one, like the one that looks like John Wayne They like match that up with the police sketch and it's like, oh, that's fucking him. Uh So, um, the police force also went to, um, nursing homes to question people, and, uh, they talked to this one woman and, uh, in Lane Cove, where, uh, one of the, a couple murders were, and one of the women reported that a man put his hand up her dress and grabbed her butt, Ew. and then he went to another woman's room and, like, grabbed her breasts. 
And Glover, yeah, he Glover was a sales rep for a meat pie company called Four and Twenty Pies. Um, and his job was like going to like hospitals and retirement homes to sell the pies. Um, so another time he, uh, so on January eleventh, nineteen ninety, Glover was seeing. Uh, or selling, rather, pies at the Greenwich Hospital. And he went into their room of advanced cancer patient, 82-year-old Daisy Roberts, and he asked her if she was losing any body heat. He also told her that he was a doctor, and then he started, like, feeling her up really inappropriately. She called out for help, and um, this woman named Sister Davis saw him, and he fled, but she was able to get his car registration number and she called the police the staff identified the man as john wayne glover because they knew him from him selling pies all the time Mm -hmm. so detectives from chatwood police not the task force that was covering all this called glover and they asked him to come in to be questioned and he agreed but he did not show when they called his house Glover's wife, Gay Glover, told police that Glover had attempted suicide by overdose and was recovering at the Royal North Shore Hospital. Police then went to the hospital, but Glover refused to be interviewed, but he did let them take his picture. They also had a um, suicide note of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when he um, attempted suicide, <clears throat> he had swallowed the pills with a bunch of booze and so he had this very it wasn't so much a suicide note as it was just kind of like statements written on a piece of paper like just kind of random things one of the things written on it said no more grannies and another one said uh essie started it Hmm. and essie was uh glover's mother-in-law um so uh, it was not until two weeks later that the task force was actually given this stuff. Um, they sat on it for a little while. Um, so Gay was completely in denial of her husband's guilt, and she hired a lawyer named John uh, Walkling, and Glover denied all the allegations. The task force matched the picture of uh, him that had been taken at the hospital to the police sketch, and like I was saying before, like, yeah. They were like, yeah, yeah, this this is our guy. So police also discovered at this time that Glover was impotent, which explained... Why there was no sexual assault. Why there was no sexual assault. Wow. Um, police interviewed Glover about the assaults, but because they only had limited evidence, they chose not to question him for the murders because they didn't want him to know that they thought that he was the granny killer. So, Glover is put under surveillance. His car is actually fitted with a tracking device, and Glover tries really hard to lose them by, like, going around the block, going down the wrong way, down one-way roads, and this is exactly what John Wayne Gacy did when he was under police surveillance. Weird. It's very, very strange. Police also find out that Glover is a regular at the Mossman RSL Club, which obviously is very close to where the killings were happened. Uh, were happening rather, um, and they find that Glover has been convicted of two counts of indec- indecently assaulting women, 
and two counts of assault resulting in bodily harm, so like battery, and then five counts of larceny. The the task force canvasses local nursing slash retirement homes, and Glover had committed some assaults at quite a few. So this one detective named Kim uh, McGuy goes to the James Milson nursing home at Kirribilli, and she's alone, and she interviews a secretary there who ends up being Glover's wife. So police are like, oh shit, she's definitely going to tell her husband. So on the morning of March 9th, 1990, four days after she had the wife had been questioned, Glover is followed by the police to um, a store where he buys a bottle of scotch. Then he drives to a house in Mossman. He goes to the front door and a woman opens it and lets him in. The woman was a friend um, named Joan Sinclair and she was 60 years old. Um, the police took up positions all around the house and as time goes on, the lead detective is starting to get worried as he was getting information from the surveillance team. And so he goes to the area to wait. School let out and two school children went up to Joan's house and knocked on the door and there was no reply. Joan had dogs that were barking a lot. And so under the presumption that they were going to the house for a noise complaint, um, they knocked on the door, but nobody came out. They walked to the back of the house and entered and saw a hammer on the floor and saw a body in the hallway. And they left um, as uh, the other force detectives went in and they found Joan Sinclair's body and found that she was already dead. Her head was wrapped in blood-soaked towels and she was naked from the waist down. And her pantyhose were around her neck and there was also damage to her genitals. Mm. As they searched the house, they found Glover's clothes in the master bedroom. Then they found Glover in a bathtub, unconscious from a drug overdose, and he had slashed his left wrist. Wow. Um, The police call an ambulance, and Glover is taken to the hospital, escorted by the police. Like John Wayne Gacy, um, there was disbelief. So he wasn't dead. Wow. They were like, we can't let this motherfucker die. Like, damn. He yeah, no, fuck him. And he literally killed someone right in front of him. Yeah. But there was literally, like, they said there was, like, nothing that they could do. So, um, he was, like, an upstanding member of this community. He was a husband. He was a father. Similar to John Wayne Gacy? Yeah. Um, he, you know, um, and so Glover spoke to the police when he regained consciousness and he talked about the similarities between the victims and his mother-in-law. And he also was like accepting the fact that he was responsible. So they called in the detectives and Glover admitted to the killings. Mm -hmm. Um, They called his wife who then called the lawyer who rushed to the hospital, but Glover insisted on giving his statement. He said that he wanted to get this off of his chest. Mm -hmm. While searching uh, Glover's house, they found the shoes that he had been wearing, which was the first definitive physical proof. Um, And at the hospital, he is charged with the murder of Joan Sinclair and was taken into custody. He went with police to the different crime scenes and explained in gory detail how he murdered each woman and afterwards would go to the RSL to gamble the money stolen from the victims because he had a gambling problem. Mm. Detectives Gambling is gross. It, Sorry. I think it is, too. I think it's gross. I think it's gross. If you do it, like, once because you're in Vegas, sure. 
Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, like <laughs> I think it's weird, too. I think it's just a scam to get your money. But anyways, yeah. though, detectives wanted more background information, like why was Glover so obsessed with elderly women? Um, so they went back to his childhood, and he was born in the UK, and uh, his mother's name was Frida. Didn't get any information about his dad, but apparently Frida had several husbands and several boyfriends while, uh, while, you know, Glover was growing up. So that formed a very unhealthy relationship with his mom. And he was briefly in the British Army, but he was kicked out when they found out about, um, a criminal, his criminal history was stealing, basically. So he's always been a little fucking thief. Yeah. So, when he was 25, he emigrated to Australia and decided to live in Melbourne. He had, like, a very troubled relationship, like I said, with his mother. And once he was married, he had a lot of trouble with his mother-in-law. He um, and Gay were married in 1968 and moved, he moved with her to Sydney to live in a house that was owned by her parents. And Gay's mother, Essie, did not think Glover was good enough for his daughter. And, like, she did not shy away from letting him know. (laughs) Um, Glover didn't actually begin murdering women, though, until his mother and his mother-in-law had died. And they think that that might have been the spark that triggered him to do it. Um, So even though Glover confessed to the crimes... Maybe he had always planned on killing them, and then he never got his chance. And I think so, because I think, like, in doing those was, like, and also, a lot of the sexual stuff that he did, like, it was obviously to embarrass the women, but it was also to throw the police off. Yeah. Thinking, like, someone was sexually assaulting him, but it couldn't be he. His penis can't get hard. Um, so, even though he confessed, he pleaded not guilty on the grounds of diminished responsibility. A psychiatrist said that Glover had built up aggression since childhood against his mother, but said that he was sane... At the time of the murders. The prosecutor said that Glover was 100% aware of his actions. He had plans on what he was going to do with the money after taking it from his victims. And he also took the time to clean his hammer. So obviously he knew he did something wrong. Uh, The trial began on November 18th of 1990. And on November 29th of 1990, he was found guilty, which included six counts of murders to which he was sentenced to six consecutive life centers Dang. on september 9th of 2005 glover died from suicide by hanging at the ho- uh, prison he was in and he was 72 years old hmm. yep. is there there's not the death sentence in australia I, I didn't hear about it at all i don't believe so no yeah i don't think just in general there is right mm, all across the board no yeah well dang that's a fucked up story <laughs> i know the one that really gets me is like but the when the cops were just like right there, yeah, and like they couldn't do anything. That would, I think, that weighs on probably a lot of those people. So wait, hearts. why couldn't they do anything? Because they couldn't just go in. Otherwise, yeah, it, it, they could. That could be used against them. You can't like get um, evidence. In, yeah, you have to have a otherwise. Search. So they have they have search warrants there too. Yeah, they do. Well, damn. Yep. All right, well, we're kind of moving to the exact opposite. Whereas your guy was an old person killer, mine is very much so the opposite. Oh, gross. So my story is about Kathleen Fulbig. 
Um, Kathleen's probably pretty well known as far as like female, like killers in uh, in Australia. I saw her on some lists. Yeah. So um, some of you may know who this is already, but um, Kathleen was born on the fourteenth of June in nineteen sixty-seven. She was brought up in a foster family. Because her father had actually murdered her mother. He stabbed her 24 times because she was trying to leave him at the time. So um, so I think she kind of like moved through the foster system quite a bit. She stayed with one family in particular for a while. Um, and they like st- kind of stay with her throughout her life. But um, I think she was kind of in and out of different places her whole life. Um Kathleen has been quoted saying that she felt her purpose in life was to have a family and be a mother because she felt with going through the foster system herself that she wanted to have a real family of her own. Kathleen married Craig Gibson Fulbig in 1987. They had their first child in 1989 and his name was Caleb. Caleb was said to be kind of a noisy baby. He had what is very common in newborns that's called Laryngomachal. Macaulia? Basically, it means that the larynx is too soft, and so, because it's not fully formed, so the cartilage of the upper larynx collapses inward during inhalation, causing airway obstruction, which made him a very noisy breather. However, this is pretty normal, and it usually fixes itself in most cases. Okay. So it's not that unheard of to have. Um Sadly, Caleb only lived 19 days in his short life. Kathleen claims that when she went to check on the baby, she found that he was limp and not breathing. His death was determined at autopsy to be SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. So after Caleb's death, Kathleen and Craig became pregnant again on the 3rd of June, 1990. Patrick was born. When Patrick was about three months old, Kathleen again found her child not breathing in his crib. She screamed out to her husband, who then came in and started performing CPR while Kathleen called an ambulance. They were able to revive Patrick, but after this happened, he suffered like, um, like he had like epileptic seizures because Mm. he had not been breathing for so long. So it caused severe brain damage. Um, Four months later, when Patrick was eight months old, Kathleen again found the baby not breathing in his crib. This time, he was not able to be revived, and he did pass away. The death was basically just said to be obstruction to his airway due to seizures. Um, the couple became pregnant again in 1992. October 14th, their first daughter, Sarah, was born. Family members described Sarah as being a very silly and playful baby. Mm-hmm. But again, while asleep in her crib, Sarah was found by her mother, not breathing at 10 months old, and the death was also determined to be SIDS. She would have been great. I know. Like, right, yeah. Um, so then, three and a half years later, after Kathleen had another baby named Laura, who was born on the 7th of August in 1997... Uh, the family was really scared that something was going to happen to Laura because obviously there kept being all of these SIDS-related deaths. Yeah, three yeah. SIDS-related deaths. Laura was the first child to make it to her first birthday. Uh, on the 1st of March, 1999, Kathleen had taken Laura with her to the gym, and Laura, or she said, said that Laura had then fell asleep on their car ride home and that Kathleen put her in her crib and went on to kind of, like, do things throughout the house. 
And then she says when she went to check on Laura later that day, she found her not breathing. Laura was 20 months old when she died. So she's basically two years old. Basically. The autopsy of Laura's body found that she had suffered from a cold-like illness the week before her death, and she was found that she had myocarditis, which Mm. is the swelling of the heart muscles, which can be caused by a viral infection. Hmm. However, the autopsy wasn't able to pinpoint an actual cause of death, and by 20 months old, it was Basically, like, you couldn't consider it SIDS. She oh, was, she was she's too not old. an infant. She was a toddler, almost. The autopsy also couldn't completely rule out whether or not suffocation was a possible cause of death. So by this point, it was kind of impossible for police not to notice a serious pattern forming. However, they had no real proof or evidence to use against Kathleen. That is, until her husband Craig found Kathleen's diary. Oh, fuck. So here are some quotes from the diary. Oh, no. What scares me most is when I'm alone with the baby. I cherish Laura more. I miss her, Sarah. Yes. But I'm not sad that Laura is here and she isn't. Is that a bad way to think? Don't know. I think I'm more patient with Laura. I take the time to figure what is wrong now instead of just snapping my cog. Wouldn't have handled another Sarah. She saved her life by being different. Talking about Laura. About the fucking baby. She had left with a bit of help in referring to Sarah. Wow. Um, She also made comments saying that she would sometimes wish Sarah would just shut up. uh, And now she had. Uh, The diary uh, was the first piece of evidence that the police had and they did use that to arrest Kathleen with the four children's deaths they argued that Kathleen must have smothered her children either trying to keep them quiet like just having them go to sleep or to kill them Um, but basically she was just trying to render them unconscious is what they were trying to say Uh, Craig Kathleen's husband gave testimony during the trial saying that she always seemed very stressed around the children especially around the time of laura and sarah's deaths on the 21st of may 2003 kathleen was found guilty of three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm she was sentenced to 40 years with a non-parole period of 30 years which was later reduced to 30 years with a non-parole period of 25 years. This verdict earned Kathleen the title of Australia's worst female serial killer. That's so... Because of just, like, the amount of deaths. Yeah, I mean, she killed four people. Four little people. So Kathleen has always maintained her innocence. Always. Always stating that her children died of natural causes and never by her hand. Fuck that bitch. Did she have PTSD? Not that we know of or that was ever talked about in court stuff. Kathleen did have some supporters helping her get her case reexamined while she was in prison. Her family and friends started a petition to help her and also reached out to medical experts who worked pro bono to further examine the evidence, basically. Emma Cunliffe uh, was a writer. She wrote a book titled Murder, Medicine, and Motherhood, which details Kathleen's trials and appeals in specific. She found that the medical evidence used against Kathleen was unreliable, and her whole statement kind of is basically how 
we think that mothers should be a certain way, and when they're not, we demonize them to the point of even like saying that they could kill their kids. Exactly. When really sometimes moms drop their babies, and it doesn't mean that they're bad moms or you know things yeah, no, like that. Hundred percent. Because basically, what the um, like the biggest part of the original case was that they asked a bunch of different like doctors. In your opinion, have you ever in your life heard of like four different babies just dying in their cribs in one family? And they all said no. Right. They all were basically like one death is a tragedy, two deaths is suspicious, three deaths should be considered homicide until proven guilt until proven otherwise, basically. Yeah. And four, it's like, how the fuck did we even fucking get here? Exactly. I don't even know how the, the this didn't happen until the fourth. Because, I mean, like, the three babies died, and then it was like five years later until she had Laura. I mean, it's just fucking common sense. It's just crazy. And so, like, when she called the... Because there was, like, a, a 911 call for when she called about Laura. She was, like, very frantic, but she's like, I've had three already. And they were like, three what? And she was like, SIDS. I've had three SIDS already. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so this baby's old, so. Yeah. So on the 22nd of August 2018, it was announced that there would be an inquiry into the convictions to ensure confidence in the administration of justice, which I think is great. Because it's basically them being like, we will, we want to make sure that you are secure that we provided justice, basically. Right. Um, which I think more cases should be done. Brianna Taylor, hello. Yeah, hi. In America. So they have specialists give evidence about forensic pathology, SIDS, and whether previously unknown genetic issues may have been factors of the death. Such as Patrick, since he did have epileptic seizures and Laura having the heart condition and the other true, truly dying of SIDS. However, the chief judge still ruled he did not have any reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Kathleen. Her supporters are still trying to take legal action against the court. The matter is actually next. Uh, it was so I was reading this one article and it was basically saying that it was next going to be in court the 28th of August 2020. So then I had to kind of dig around to find what happened there because it wasn't like it was kind of hard to find. Uh-huh. But um, they did cite that this time there would be a significant shift in the scientific material and are aiming to have original reports declared legally flawed. Um However, the attorney general denied the accusations and the matter is now adjourned until February of 2021, which is the exact same time that the next, like February 2021 is when the, the next guy's stuff is up too. So, fuck. I know. That's crazy. So the story of Kathleen is ongoing. That's why I said true crime, because obviously she was convicted of the murders. So she, she she's convicted. So we can call her a murderer. Yeah. But... In the in the case. in the vein of just saying like, or I don't know, just like, who knows? Maybe she didn't do it. I mean, you never fucking. Know. You never know, and just like, I mean, like again, if she did it, that is so disgustingly awful and horrible, and it happens unfortunately a lot. But if she didn't, how awful would it be to be tried for the murders of your children after you already kind of feel like a failed parent? Right. Because a lot of what um. The lady who wrote the book was like, she even, because she was in this documentary that I was watching, she was like, I 100% understand why her diary made them think that she killed her kids. She's like, but if you read it in a more, like, just logical way, 
that's probably how any mother feels. And like that is true. And that Kathleen true. has been said saying like people aren't supposed to read people's diaries that it, like she, she basically and Kathleen has said some weird stuff because she's she says she thinks something like maybe science fiction happened to all the kids. And she feels like she specifically has been like cursed. Okay. Which, I mean, I can understand how you could feel that way. I get, but yeah. like, um, yeah, the the author of the the book basically was saying that she thinks a lot of it was just her writing really intensified versions of the way that she's feeling, I get and that. that you know. None of us really know. I will say the diary entries, because there's more that I didn't say, are very damning and kind of hard to ignore. Yeah, I mean, I think um, on the on its face, it definitely is a no-brainer. But at the same time, nothing is I ever mean, saying that she, the, like the biggest thing is like saying that Sarah went with a little help. Yeah. It's just like, what does that mean, a little help? Because Sarah didn't have any... No, Sarah wasn't. Sarah was one of the ones that was just considered. That sits. was just sits. Yeah, huh. even though she was ten months old. I mean, that's almost a year old. Usually, after a year, I think it's no longer considered sits. So, like, I would imagine more. And it's weird that it's the babies infant. all lived long because, like, the first one was only alive for nineteen days. Yeah, I I hate that. That's I know, so not sad. even a month. But I mean, that happens all the time people i mean sudden infant death syndrome happens all the time it's really sad it's really sad so imagine that happening to you and then like people thinking that you did it it's just it's an awful thing that mothers shouldn't have to deal with and i do think the the book that she wrote i mean it's pretty short so it's a pretty easy read it's like 200 pages so for sure it's definitely something to look into all right well that has been um australian killers yes this is a long one this is uh close up to to uh two hours wow Y'all have fun listening to these. Y'all three. Also, we never say this, but I've been hearing it more and more just in other people's podcasts that we would love it if you guys would like and rate our podcast on Apple because it actually helps other people to find our podcast by getting those ratings. So the more that you leave a rating, even if it's a bad one, I think it, it just kind of like gets it gets the word out there more yeah. and it helps us out and we would appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, for this episode, um, you know, comment um how shit my Australian accent might be. Yeah. You can or say how, uh, whatever you want. How fucking I can't. I'm not even going to pretend to do an Australian accent because I did it enough already. Um, yeah, so that's been on our, yeah. our Follow us on episode. Facebook, Sisters Grim Podcast. Follow us individually on Instagram. Yep. I am Morgan D. Freeberg. I am basically Holly Cheeseburger across the board. Follow me on TikTok. I was going to say, and now we're TikTokers. And I'm also Morgan D. Freeberg on TikTok, yeah, too. Fucking y'all do tiktok i'm so happy i got did not get banned speaking of which though i heard that it's still it's still a thing it's not totally like like out of the woods we don't have to talk about this on the podcast but uh i've heard that there's some more thing going on with it well fuck (laughs) holly loves tiktok i really do so on that also uh (laughs) this is october 1st that we're going to be putting this episode out and we are going to try our freaking best to get a podcast out every week in October. It's spooky season, y'all. It's spooky season, y'all. It's spooky season, y'all. It's spooky season, y'all. And that was for all of our listeners who hate when we sing. (laughs) Yeah, fuck you. (laughs) All right. Love y'all super much. Bye.